This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. You know who I can do without? I can do without the people in the video store. Which ones? All of them. This is Massive Late Fee with Mike and Mark. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Massive Late Fee. My name is Mark. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mike. How you doing, Mike? Not too bad. How about yourself? Good. We've had a, a good week here at Massive Late Fee. As always, uh, we've... We're... I don't know. We're doing stuff. <laughs> Mike and I have been watching things. We've got things in the planning stages of, uh, you know, different things that we're thinking about doing, different things we're thinking about bringing you. So... You know, I guess uh, look forward to that. Uh, but news. I've only got a couple pieces of news today, Mike. Uh, one, I guess I'll start with uh, top news or whatever you want to call it. Mario Lopez got into some uh, pretty big trouble, I guess, for some words that he said on Candace Owens' podcast. Uh, instead of just going by what the, you know, what different articles told me was said on the show, I decided to listen to the actual podcast so I could see what he said. Uh, and so basically uh, what he said was that he was disturbed by, they, they was talking about parenting. He, it's funny because he did sort of like he was... <laughs> He said, my brand basically is the, the five F's, family, faith, fun, fitness, and I don't know, something else, fucking, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what the other one was, but it's so weird to, to think to, for him to talk about himself as if, uh, you know, the way he lives his life is a brand. It's just odd to me, but I guess that's what, you know, being a celebrity since you're 10 years old. That's the kind of attitude that you have. Anyway, so he was talking about family, and he said he was sort of disturbed by the trend of parents allowing their children to choose their gender, uh, like at 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, uh, kind of those ages. And he, he basically said that he thought that kids were too young to make those kinds of decisions at, at that time. And the entire world went insane uh, over it because that's what the world does now. Um, I read a an article that said that his comments were not only stupid, they were dangerous. <laughs> Here, that's, that's, that's Time's... That's uh, NBC Time Magazine's headline. By the way, he worked for uh, NBC on on Saved by the Bell. Mario Lopez's comments about transgender kids aren't just dumb, period. They're dangerous, period. Not the best sentence in the world. It should probably be a, not even a semicolon, really, really just a, a comma. Um, well, from someone with uh, that mentality, I don't expect a perfect grammar out of them. Yeah, so the whole thing is really stupid to me. 
Um, I, I, I find nothing to disagree with on that. I mean, a nine, ten-year-old doesn't really know themselves yet. I mean, mm-hmm. growing up, um, I, I have a, a daughter who's going to be 11 tomorrow, actually. Um, she said, you know, I wish I was a boy. I mean, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. what she means is she wants to be able to do stuff that boys do because she thinks she's more like a tomboy, but... Right. I, mean, I shouldn't rush out to the uh, endocrinologist and be like, all right, testosterone. She thinks she might want to be a boy. She's eight. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the problem. I have no problem with transgender people a- at all. If you I, – I believe this – and this is my, my belief. Uh, I don't have any scientific evidence to ba- that uh, has been found. But I believe that as they continue researching, they, they probably will. Find this. I think that there are people that are born mentally one sex and maybe, you know, a certain hormones that, that appear in the brain mentally one sex and they are born biologically the other sex. And that's what transgenderism is. That's my belief. I don't think it's a choice. I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think it's a choice for people that have this this abnormality of birth. Sure. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't care even if it is a choice. If someone, an adult, wants to suddenly be like, eh, I, yeah, I don't want to you know, be a woman anymore. It, True. It doesn't matter to me. It does. It affects me in no way whatsoever. I mm-hmm. do not care. But the idea that a, a nine-year-old is emotionally mature to, you know, make a decision that will affect you, you know, greatly for the rest of your life, that's just ridiculous. I mean, Agreed. the human brain isn't fully, I mean, your brain's not even fully formed until you're, you're in your mid-20s. So, I yep. Mean, well, you could argue that an 18-year-old doesn't, you know, I mean, an 18-year-old can go to war. I mean, that makes sense. You know, why not send someone who's young and impressionable? <laughs> right? No kidding. I mean, but, you don't see a lot of, you know, 30-year-olds just like, yeah, you know what? I think sounds like a good idea. I'm going to join a new religion or I'm going to, you know, go to war. I mean, that's, you know, the more mature brain generally, you know, realizes how risky such things are. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I and I totally agree. I think, you know, I, I'm fine with kids with kids making well i'm fine with people making this choice when they're when they're 18 or 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 even perhaps starting down the road of this maybe when they're like 14 or something like that 14 15 16 as they're going through puberty i mean i guess it's hard to know arbitrarily you know what age around what age of puberty yeah, is and each appropriate person matures differently as well so, yeah you know. but i mean I, I mean like with the uh you know bruce slash caitlin jenner i mean you mm-hmm. know he, he, she was like what 60 something yeah i mean so it's like i mean you never i mean and then finally it took you that long to be like okay i'm gonna you know make this the full you know full-on switch or whatever mm-hmm yeah, so I mean, it's like, you know, I, I think it's a decision between the parents, I guess, and the kids. I don't think there should necessarily be, but I, but I mean, even at like 14, and I know I probably sound backwards to a lot of few people listening, but it just, it gives me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies. And it doesn't give me the heebie-jeebies in the fact that I, that transgendered people do, because they don't. It gives me the heebie-jeebies in, you know, if, <laughs> Think about the stuff you wore. I know it's different, but think about the stuff you wore when you were 14. And then think about if that was what you had to wear for the rest of your life. I mean, these are big, life-changing decisions that we're allowing people that, that we don't even trust to drive a car to to make. So I, I agree with him I because because he cited specific ages and because he wasn't just saying, in general, transgendered people. And that's the thing. The nuance 
of what he said gets lost in this rush to to condemn and that's that's the bad part about the whole thing i don't see anything that he said that was wrong uh i think that the choice to that you know i think either the choice or the reality accepting the reality of you being a transgendered person is something that takes a while to come to grips with it it takes you know i remember when i was a kid you know, I, like when I was very young, uh, six, seven, eight years old or whatever, uh, I used to say like, oh, I'd like to be a girl because I thought being a girl would be like glamorous and, and, and stuff like that because of stuff that we see in TV. And my sisters, you know, one time dressed me up in my mom's dress and they, they had a they took a picture of that when I was like five or six years old that that they thought was hilarious. Now, had my parents said, oh, you want to be a woman, and then started leading me down that path because I am impre- because I was impressionable at that oh, age. Sure. And your brain is not mature <laughs> at all. Yeah, then I would have, I, I might have gone down that path, and knowing what I know about myself now, I know that wouldn't have been the right decision to make. So it, it's very dangerous, you know, like doing, you, you have to, you know, you have to really use some restraint, uh, even if you think, that your child is transgendered or whatever. It's it, what worries me about it is it seems like it's almost becoming a trend because it, you know if it is a disease, well not a disease, but if it is a, dis, a, a disorder of, of birth, like like I think it is, um, you know, much the same way as like homosexuality. Not disorder is probably the wrong word, but it, you know, an abnormality of because it's not that's not the norm. Mo- normally, most people are are heterosexual, a percentage of the population is homosexual and has been throughout history. It's the same thing, I think, with, with transgendered people, um, but the percentages are low. And it seems like we're seeing a lot more than maybe the percentages would bear out. So Yeah, but you could also make the argument that maybe people are more comfortable, you know, in mm. admitting it. Like, you know, with the whole police brutality, like a few years ago, it's like, right. oh my God, there's so, there's suddenly all this police brutality. It's like, no, there's always been this police brutality, but everybody now has a cell phone and a way to instantly transmit what's happening. That's a solid point, yeah. But uh, I think it just people need to be careful, and parents need to be careful out there. You know, obviously don't take everything you're... Your child yeah, I mean, says completely seriously. I understand, you know, they're, they're, it's weird. Like, uh, some people just want to be, it, it, not that I don't want to be friends with my children, but I want to direct them properly more so than that. I mean, yeah. if you're, you know, too caught up in, like, you know, pop culture and, I mean, I, I just think you need to, I, I would not give hormones to a young person. It's just a bad idea. Yeah, I know. know. Yeah, it, it that that's one of the things that kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies is when they talk about, uh, pre-pubescent giving them hormones so to stop puberty because they think they might be transgender. And I'm like, oh my God, but then how do you know? Like if you don't actually go through puberty and those hormonal changes never take place, then, then how do you know? It's choosing your gender is not, it shouldn't be just we're all born general, gender neutral and then you just get to pick whichever one you want. That I mean, that I mean, maybe maybe that should be how it works. And when you get to be an adult, you can just pick whatever. And that's that's the, the future that we're going to. And if that's the, I don't think science is quite there yet. Right, but it's just kind of like, you know what I mean? Like if you're not if you're never going through those hormonal changes, then how do you really know? 
So, yeah, a lot of that stuff kind of bothers me or whatever. If anyone out there thinks that we're idiots and wants to and wants to have an actual civil discussion about this, come on. I am more than willing to talk about this because I'll be the first to admit that I don't I'm not incredibly, um, you know, learned on this topic. Uh, Mario Lopez, you know, was forced to apologize, obviously. And then this, you know, this this thing comes out saying his comments are dangerous, which I think is so stupid. Not having the discussion is what's dangerous. Let's, you know, he didn't say anything like that these people were evil or, or anything like that, or these parents were evil, just that it bothered him. Basically kind of the same things that we're saying, that doing this stuff, you know, is bothersome to him because he's not sure that it's the right thing to do. And I think it's a conversation all of us, you know, should be able to have without fear of losing our jobs. You know, let's go on record saying that I really don't care about the whole transgender thing at all. And I don't mean that in a shithole way. I mean, it just doesn't affect me. I mean, if that's mm-hmm. what you want to do, go ahead and do it. I really legitimately don't care what you do with your own body. Exactly. Oh, so, uh, I'll move on to the the, uh, the last story I have. I just had the two stories today because I figured we'd go a little bit uh, on the Mario Lopez thing. Uh, kind of recapping the story that we... We started covering, well, I, not that we found during our, our Keeping Current with Mike segment, uh, Aesop Rocky is going to be freed or, or has been freed. Yeah, he's already back in the United States, and I think his hearing is going to be on the 14th of August, but he mm-hmm. says he's never going back to Sweden, so <laughs> fuck you, Sweden. <laughs> you lost, Sweden. Yeah, just, though I'm not, I'm not happy with the, the government apparently put some sort of pressure on Sweden. I think that's a shitty thing to do. I mean, we mm-hmm. wouldn't want the Swedish government, as shitty as they are, to, you know, do the same thing if, like, you know, Hans Bergerberger, like, you know, a counterfeited Swedish fish or something like that. Exactly. No, no, I, I agree. I agree. It's not the, yeah, putting political pressure or, or whatever on the Swedish government is probably not uh, the best thing to do. Yeah, Aesop Rocky says he's not going back to Sweden. I mean, I don't blame him for wanting to go back. See, I don't, I, see I, the more I hear about it, he, he kind of seems like he might be kind of guilty. Uh, I hate to take but Sweden's I, it, side. Yeah, I'm not taking Sweden's side. But I'm uh, saying, I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, it, it's not, I mean, I don't think six months in a Swedish prison is like anything close to being a hard time. No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine. You get you'll those massages every day. You probably you probably know how to make pastries when you're done. <laughs> you know, Mark, this this might be a first, if not, it's within the top five. But I have a news story for you. Oh my gosh! Okay, go ahead. This is breaking news. It was just announced in the last three hours. Uh, the Disney Plus streaming service says that it will have Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus for the same price of Netflix. Holy shit! Okay. Yeah. So- see. That even makes me want because I already subscribed to Hulu. Me too. I like I like ESPN Plus for the uh, you know like UFC. Some of the UFC fights are only on, US, on ESPN Plus now. Mm-hmm. So I mean that alone would probably be worth it, and I'm sure I get some like you know some other baseball games. Not that I want to watch a Detroit Tiger baseball game right now, right? But you know if I wanted to, it's 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 not much more than I'm already paying, which really pisses me off because I I don't want to support Disney in any way whatsoever. I know, but they just, they make it so, they make it so easy for you. (laughs) And it becomes harder and harder, too, because they own everything. Not a lot of, not stuff I like, but yeah, a lot of people like a lot of their stuff. Yeah. Uh, I I, I forgot they own Powder, the the pedophile uh, directed movie that they uh, put out. (laughs) 
That's right. They own powder, and uh, I think they own cheaper scrapers too. I bet they do. Oh wow! But yeah, so that's that's interesting. Disney Plus, so you can get Hulu now. I wonder, I wonder if you're people like us that already have Hulu, because obviously there's a lot of us out there. I wonder what, I wonder what if it's just going to be like an add-on. You know, you can add on this yeah, uh, this package for this amount of money or whatever. I mean, I'll probably get it just because there are some movies. My kids aren't huge into Disney movies, but they like uh, a decent amount of the Pixar movies. So yeah, yeah, mine aren't really huge into either. So I'm pretty happy with that. But then my oldest described herself as a Disney kid. I'm like, I, that's news to me, right? <laughs> She's more like a YouTube kid these days. Oh yeah, yeah. That's my oldest too. Is on YouTube all the time. But interesting. So I guess we'll we'll keep an eye on what uh, what Disney's doing since they will soon be our corporate overlords. Uh, <laughs> so now we'll move. They won't, they won't let a uh, they won't let a four year old boy's uh, grieving uh, parents put a, a Spider Man emblem on his uh, gravestone though. Yeah, so exactly. They're not 100%. Exactly. What nice people. Yeah, I uh, we got we got some people to um, to sign that petition. So. I was uh, I was happy about that. That uh, I guess that was the least we could do for uh, for that little kid. But anyway, uh, we'll move on. Still, still more than what Disney did. Yeah, exactly. We'll move on to our newest segment. Uh, what are we going to call this? Oh, dumps. I guess we'll call it dumpster diving. Remember back in the '60s when uh, Disney was making uh, you know progressive leaps in the uh, treatment of uh, other races and such? Mm-hmm. And uh, oh wait, that was Marvel who made Spider-Man. Right. Dis- Disney was making the Song of the South and Dumbo. Exactly. <laughs> which, which I don't know if they're going to completely 100% re- reproduce those remakes. What do you think? Well, they did Dumbo already, and I'm not. I don't think Jim Crow, which is the actual name of the crow, is in the movie. <laughs> I would guess he's not. Uh, Song of the but, South but, has but been Marvel like, buried. Was Marvel, who was creating the X Men, was actively making a commentary on you know the racial struggles of the sixties. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And you know, but, but since Disney bought them, that means they did the same thing. So it's all okay now. <laughs> that is funny. I wonder if they think that. I wonder if Disney thinks that that they bought that virtue. Well, I think they only think about uh, profit, and uh, clearly they don't think about storytelling or quality of movies as evidenced by the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Star Wars movie. <laughs> well, in Dumpster Diving, we're talking about sort of a Disney property, I guess, in a way. This was on ABC, and ABC, or Disney owns ABC. I don't know if they did during the mid-90s. They, they, they did on. for sure, because every uh, sitcom... On the TGF lineup, made a trip to Disney World at one point. Even Roseanne, the characters, went to Disney World one up. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's right. They did. Although Roseanne actually had, like, a spoof of Disney, or, like, immediately after us. So that was pretty funny. But, yeah, the, I think there was, like, some obligation. Like, hey, bring everybody down to Disney World. Even <laughs> this show we're talking about had a Disney World slash Epcot Center episode. Yeah, so we're talking about Family Matters. Uh, specifically, Season 8, Episode 7. Uh, the first appearance, uh, first of two appearances during uh, a Halloween episode of this uh, this show, Family Matters, of Stevel, a puppet that Steve Urkel made, I guess. 
Yeah, it's a ventriloquist doll that he uh, fashioned somehow, even though uh, he shows no prior skill at woodworking. Mm-hmm. I'd like to point out, though, this is on Hulu. I watched this earlier today. If anyone wants to uh, follow along, I'd pause this real quick, watch the episode on, on Hulu, and then this will make a lot more sense, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it begins with it begins with a plea to the audience not to watch the show. No, no, it begins with a a plea to the audience that uh, this is going to be a more frightening episode than usual. Uh, I I don't know. Did you find this frightening in any way? Uh, not even a little bit. So they go. That starts out with him. Uh, coming downstairs, and he's, uh, Urkel has, you know, created this dummy, he unveils it, everyone screams, <laughs> which seems an appropriate reaction to this dummy. And then he does the worst ventriloquist act I've ever seen. Everyone but, uh, the grandma uh, seems to, uh, to hate him and hate it. And she's the only one that kind of gives him any sort of encouragement at all. He goes upstairs, he's all depressed. He sets the uh, the doll down. The, this room, in- incredibly Chicago 90s, with the Bulls yeah, posters. I vaguely remember at one point in Family Matters, Steve moved in with the Winslows. Mm-hmm. I guess. This is, and then there's like a, you know, like you said, it's super 90s. There's like a Michael Jordan slash uh, Dennis Rodman poster up there. It's, you know, it's it's 1990s Chicago, which... Makes no sense because, for all I know, Steve does not give one shit about sports ever. Yeah, you would think he wouldn't, based on his personality and everything that he does. But uh, what's his name? Eddie comes in and says that you know he's going to go get a, a hand job from some chick because the only dolls that he wants sitting on his lap talk on their own already. Yeah, that was a. Uh, you actually skipped ahead a bit. Um... Eddie comes in for no reason whatsoever because Steve sleeps and like lightning hits uh, his uh, Urkel uh, oh, yeah. doll. The worst '90s lightning effects ever. What What really fascinated me this whole episode was uh, the audience reactions. I don't it, know what the fuck they were reacting to. It was like they gassed the audience. I was thinking the same thing because anytime this doll would move, they had they had three different ways that they there's just like a standard puppet and then. Uh, like a more complicated marionette on like a, a stand that could kind of move back and forth. And then a, a child, uh, you know, dre- like a poor child dressed up like this <laughs> steve character with this horrible mask. So that's the three ways yeah. they made it move. And, and it was t- very obvious when they had a child. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and any- like it, was, it was absolutely the worst effects I've ever seen in anything in my entire life. Oh, it was, ter- it was terrible even for mid-90s television. Yeah. But yeah, anytime it moved in any way, the audience was like, whoa, and then they start laughing. I was like, my God, did they pump laughing gas into this studio audience? Yeah, I noticed some of the times they laughed, they couldn't have possibly been watching that because it was like when they were animating it with effects. So I don't know if they just like, you know, just <laughs> like, you know, recorded it and then replayed it. Like some of the laughs sounded identical, so I wouldn't be shocked by that. Yeah, I have no, I have no clue, but it was, yeah, the audience was something else in this episode. Yeah, and, and they laughed at, like, the, if you notice, the biggest laughs are at the worst, worst jokes. Like, they make, like, whenever they made, like, a terrible pun, the audience mm. was fucking, like, shitting their pants with laughter. Oh, yeah, and there's, I'll say that, well, that girl that plays Laura, 
should have received some sort of honorary award for being able to deliver those lines with a straight face and not blowing her brains out. Uh, yeah, the entire cast uh, deserves an award for... Uh, first of all, this is like the very second-to-last season of Family Matters, so it's mm-hmm. basically the Urkel show at this point. Yeah, you know what's funny is at one point... At one point, I thought that... Uh, some of the uh, some of the conversation between Jaleel White and the producers must have gotten into the uh, the script because at one point Steve talks about how he doesn't like the Winslows and he says the Winslows are in the way the Winslows uh, I hate the Winslows so we've got to get them out of the way or something like that and I was thinking yeah just like the show did to them right yeah it's funny because like the um if you notice, like the um, at the very beginning, like when he's doing the uh, the uh, voice for the doll, it's just his natural speaking voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By this time, like Julia White was probably like nineteen or twenty. I mean, he had been forced to do this voice that was like a strain on his vocal cords for like probably like seven years at this point. Yeah, it's the Screech Powers uh, syndrome. I mean, I, I I just felt bad for all the. I mean, I'm sure I'm. I hope they were making a good amount of money for this fucking show at this point because it's just like ridiculous. Like the the the. It's the worst script ever. The jokes are terrible. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think the, I forget the, the lady who plays Laura, she had like one like fucking scene in the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where she's like, pieced out into uh, different areas of the cabinet. Yeah. It's, it, 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 what's really fucked up is, uh, as I'm sure you know, Perfect Strangers started as a, a spinoff of, rather, uh, Family Matters started as a spinoff of Perfect Strangers with yeah. Harriet's character. Yep. So she, this poor woman, like she goes in, like, oh yeah, I have a spinoff of my character. I'm gonna have a show, you know. <laughs> I know it's so sad. And then, and then like, I, I actually watched, I, I, I watched the Family Matters from the very pilot episode. Like, I don't think Urkel was in the pilot. Maybe he was in the second episode, but like, it definitely seemed like it was like, oh, okay, the woman who plays Harriet's got a big part, you know, and they have Reginald Bell Johnson. He's, you know, he's fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, but no, fucking Steve Urkel just takes the show over like within five episodes, I'm sure, and then everything else is Urkel, Urkel, Urkel. Yeah, yeah. When step by step spun off or whatever the hell they did, uh, the their first episode, Urkel, what did he, he like? Uh, he went jet in a jetpack, yeah, over to over to their set, basically. Um, yeah, that was so. Like, yeah, he was he was a huge part of the TGIF lineup, and like you said, he completely took over the show. And yeah, this and that, same thing happened in step by step. Cody just took the fucking show over. Yep. And this obviously is sort of an extension of that because it's all about Urkel and all about, uh, you know, and, and everyone else is dumb. And I like I, I understand that they're playing it up, but but it's also just kind of how the show became because, you know, Eddie comes back from his date or whatever and he's sitting reading a magazine and this voice that sounds like the devil comes from the the chimney and says, hey, come over here. And he decides, oh, I'll just walk over there and see what's going on. And he goes, Santa? Like, 100% seriously. And the yeah. crowd just fucking loses it on that line. Like, yeah. That's like the funniest shit they've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so they everyone has become a caricature, basically. But yeah, so steve comes to life, uh, starts taking out di- all the different members of the... Or trying to take out all the different members of the family. He... He gets Eddie, like I said, that's the first one that he gets. Then they just, they, uh, they, you know, like whatever, uh, cut to him on the street in a car that I, th- I think is supposed to be comically small for the time. But no, that's, that's actually Steve Urkel's, uh, like I said, I was a big fan of Family Matters. That's Steve Urkel's car. It's like a, like a 
version of like a modern smart car. It's like yeah. Yugoslavian or something like that thing. But yeah, that's Urkel's car. Yeah, so he's chasing after the two kids who had gone out trick-or-treating. But he doesn't kill them. He simply spackles them into a wall. <laughs> They're dressed as Jordan and and Rodman. For, Who they address for, for as Halloween. And they perfectly yeah. fit with the poster that we've never seen before. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah, but he just spackles them into the wall. It makes no sense. See, I'm confused there. I'm I'm thinking, I'm not sure if they're implying that he's put them into the picture itself. Oh, okay, so like he's and some just, sort of supernatural entity. Yeah, and just the effects are so fucking... T- I mean, it would make sense that he's supernatural with what he does later with like Laura and Carl, but... Oh, that's, that's true. My, see, I'm, I'm really conflicted because this is like the, the... The entire plot of this episode is the worst fucking, like, most hackneyed plot you've ever heard in your entire <laughs> life. It rips off the Twilight Zone in several different areas. Yep. Um, the entire basic premise is, you know, obviously a classic Twilight Zone episode, which has also become a big mainstay of, like, uh, what, what is it? R.L. Stein's uh, Goosebumps. Like yep. There's a dummy in there. Yep. It's the exact same fucking thing, which is, you know, directly ripped off the, the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Um, then later, uh, as we see, Harriet turns into a jack-in-the-box at one point, which is, again, right from the fucking Twilight Zone. Yep, it is from that, the, uh, the what's it called? Uh, it's a Good Life or something like yeah. that? Yeah, It's a Good Life is the jack-in-the-box one. Yep. I mean, it's just like the worst plot. It's the worst dialogue. I... I, I legitimately feel bad for all the actors in this when I'm watching it. Like, oh, me I mean, too. Elizabeth L. Johnson, you know, he's I, I love him and everything else I've seen him in. Classically this, trained, oh, it's just, too. It's, yeah, I, I mean, I just hope he's making a good amount of money for this. Because, I mean, he, he, he's earned it at this point. Just have to have to sit there and see fucking Jaleel White, like, go out with this fucking high-pitched voice that he's outgrown, like, <laughs> ten years ago. Seriously, the... The Jack in the Box effect from thirty years ago from the Twilight Zone is better than the one in this in this show somehow. Oh, but yeah, the whole thing is terrible. Laura is is in three different pieces. She's the next one to get got. I mean, like so so few of them actually die, but they're they're just uh, some horrible fate happens to them. And yeah, she, Carl becomes a puppet himself, activated yeah. by uh, Stevel. Oh, you mentioned that he. In a very overly dramatic scene, he names himself Stevel, which yes. is weird. Yes, because he I, says not, he says he likes being evil or something like that. Yeah, I'm I'm legitimately not sure if that was like intended to be comical or not. I really like that's the whole thing about this entire episode. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or not. It's it's a very it's it's very bizarre. There's three different parts of this episode where Urkel or Stevel. You know, which is basically Urkel looks directly at the camera after saying a line. Yes, that's too many fourth wall breaks. It's pretty off-putting, but uh, yeah. So, and and what's funny is Steve controls uh, controls. Um, uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name now. You just said Carl. It. Carl. Yeah, he controls Carl. Uh, Based on where he's sitting, I you know I, I'm afraid to know where his hand is to control him. <laughs> but yeah, so he turns him into a puppet, and then the only the only one we don't see anything bad happen to is the grandma. <laughs> She's just yeah. gone. Yeah, she did her one line, and she was gone for the week. Yeah, but then at the end of the episode, it turns out that it was all just a dream, and that Urkel had just dreamed it, and. It says some disturbing things about uh, how he feels about the Winslows. 
you're incorrect. He wakes out of the dream, and then Eddie tries to kill him with a blender, and then it turns out he was in a double dream. Oh, yeah. yeah that's right. It was the dream within a dream. Yes. Oh, God. Have you ever uh, heard about the origin of the, the Cosby show? No. Like, initially, when they were going to film uh, the, the Cosby show, I guess uh, Bill Cosby's character was going to be like a plumber. Okay. And I'm like, okay, let's do like, and he's like, yeah, no, that'd be good. You know, we often see like this, you know, the African-American experience like done through like a blue collar lens. Let's do a white collar and, you know, we'll have it, you know, that'll be more interesting. Okay. I kind of feel like uh, Family Matters as if they had made the other, you know, the other decision. Like, okay, we'll just do like a blue collar standard sitcom. It's like, it's such a generic sitcom. Like, you know, every, it, it, it seemed at the very beginning you might have something interesting to say, but then they just never went ahead and said it. Yeah, no, you're 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 totally right. It it is almost like the Cosby Show if they had gone blue collar and then inexplicably added a a show breaking element in a horrible over the top character. Like he doesn't he Steve Urkel doesn't fit into that show. No, he's he's like a completely different universe of a character. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so weird that they that they they brought him on. And then he became so popular, they made the show basically all about him. Because because if you look at every other character, you know, you can see the bones of a fairly serious, you know, it's still, it's still funny, it's still a sitcom, but they have some serious things to say, and these are real people leading real lives, uh, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, this, this character is completely outside of all of that. They even had like an episode where it was like about gang violence. Like uh, the aunt who uh, suddenly was gone one season, uh, she opened a restaurant called Rachel's, mm-hmm. and like a, a gang showed up and like you know did did tagging and like you know there's like a whole like heartfelt scene about gang violence. And then the very next scene, Urkel is in, in uh, is uh, in, you know invading the uh, gang. Not that's not the word I'm looking for. Infiltrating the gang. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? And I'm like, oh <laughs> shit, that's pretty dark. And then like, hey, I'm Urkel. I'm a gangster. And of course, he's you know wacky and. You know, he's Urkel. Seriously. And, and it was probably between episodes where he stepped into the magic machine he built to make himself Stefan. <laughs> God. Oh, so that is uh, our dumpster diving for the week. Uh, interesting, interesting episode. Uh, now we'll move on to keeping current with Mike. This is where we, we plumb the depths of pop culture gossip, all that stuff, to see what's going on. Mike, where are we going this week? Fuck it. Let's do it live. <laughs> We're going to, uh, what was that? Uh, not Access Inside Hollywood. Edition. Inside Edition, yeah. <laughs> are they still around? Uh, I think they are, oddly enough. All right. Uh, but no, I, I found the mythical column that I thought existed. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I constantly insist there's a uh, a TMZ Sports, which I don't think is an actual uh, website. Uh huh. I found the uh, the version of it, but it's for USA Today, so obviously it's uh, much worse because USA Today is like a third grade reading level. <laughs> nice. But regardless, it's like you know, like sports gossip, which is kind of fun. Okay. See, I I, mo- I actually mostly know who, who the characters are in these ones. Oh yeah, me too. I'm For sure example, the uh, the first uh, popular story: Andre Drummond is preparing for the NBA season one beer at a time. Nice. <laughs> uh, obviously, being from Detroit, we know that Andre Drummond is the uh, not quite to his potential uh, center for the mm-hmm. local team. Yep. 
who they can't trade for some reason because they insist on making the playoffs uh, in the eighth seed because that's valuable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, $22 million or $22.12 million. It's cool. I would just tank until I was sure I'd be at least at the fourth seed because, like, basketball's not really, like, hockey where anyone can win, you know. It's like, basketball's like, oh, the best team pretty pretty often wins. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's no, you know, random bounce of the basketball. I'm like, oh, shit, I got a four-pointer. You know, that doesn't happen. It's usually the best team or the team that wants it the most will win. So, yeah, Andre Drummond, apparently he's drinking a lot. I don't really know. I don't care that much. Uh, hopefully we'll cut him or trade him. I actually know a little bit about this story. Just a, just a very little bit. But I believe the reason that he does it, uh, that he drinks uh, a one beer a day, is to make his caloric intake. For, to make his daily caloric intake. I don't know why he can't replace that with something else. Uh, but I yeah, mean, no, I mean, it's an easy, quick way to do it, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he says he his chef has told his personal chef, because, you know, he does make $22.12 million a year. My, my guess is, uh, am, I, am I correct in guessing that he's in a contract year then, now that he's finally fucking giving a shit about his, uh, you know, nutrition? I'm guessing. <laughs> He probably is, yeah. Let's see when his contract is uh, is up. Um, well, that's that's old. Uh, yes, he is. There's <laughs> oh, a shock. Good. That's all I can say. Yeah. So hopefully something happens. Hopefully we don't resign him. Is what happens. Yeah, or they trade him or something. And, you know, Andre Drummond would be a really, really, really good player and a good piece to a championship team, but they don't have a championship team. Yeah, he's not really someone you want to have to rely on. No, you, you can't build a team around him. You need, you know, other, you need, you need other stars around him. He's a very good role player. He's not a superstar. No. Um, he's still being twenty-two million though, and that's the NBA for you. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and good for them. Make as much as you can because you know you're not going to be able to play forever. I I have no problem at all with players chasing you know dollars in professional sports. No, me either. I mean the you know especially in the NBA or or baseball. Uh, you know there's no salary cap in baseball. In the NBA, the salary cap is so kind of flexible that it usually doesn't really matter. The only way it would affect you know, your fandom or whatever, I guess, is in the NFL where there's a, a fairly hard salary cap if you want, you know. Oh, they need, they need to worry about their money the most in the NFL. No, I know, because it's not guaranteed. Fucking murdered and cte and, you know, whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I know. I, I definitely, I'm I'm always with you on that as far as uh, players getting paid. I mean, if players aren't getting paid, then the billionaire owners are just making more money. I mean, that's that's, yeah. that's the the money's there. You know, they should get it. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I'm for college getting paid as well because oh, me too. people always make the argument that, oh, they get a free education. Well, they're not they're only going there so they can play. They're not going there for the education. If you could opt to take money instead of the education, I'm sure most of them would just take money. Yeah, and they can't work. You know, there's there's yeah. lots of restrictions uh, and all that stuff. And they're, you know, the... The bottom line is they're making a ton of money for the university. They should get and, some and of that. They're selling their likeness too. They have jerseys with players' mm-hmm. numbers on them with no name. 
Yep. They have NCAA, you know, uh, basketball and football games where you you know who the character is, but you can't, you know, it doesn't officially say it's them. Yep. It even looks like them. You know, they're making money off the players. Absolutely. Yeah, they are for sure. Oh. Yeah. So uh, our next story is uh, Drake's concert included in an enormous NBA Finals trophy. Well, I know Drake. Yeah, I know a lot of people think he's a tool bag, you know, for like, you know, arguing with players and stuff. I, I, I think he's just having fun. I, I, I think it's funny. I, I enjoy him uh, on the court. Obviously, he's a huge Raptors fan or uh, by his tattoos, uh, anyone who's recently won a championship uh, fan. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, he's from Toronto, I believe. I know he's Canadian. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you know, obviously with the with the Raptors winning this year, good for him. I, I've never seen Degrassi. I know he's on that, uh, and then I know obviously I don't. I honestly don't think I could name one of his songs, but I know I know him. Like I could I could point him out in the street. That's that's how celebrity. That's how <laughs> that's how much celebrity culture invade society i know exactly what he looks like and i know what his name is and i know he's from toronto even though i've never heard anything he's or seen anything he's ever done <laughs> uh but yeah so i know he was at the the a lot of the games i think he sat next or near and i remember there was a big there was a big controversy i want to say with maybe rihanna or something like that. They used to date or something. I don't know. And they wanted... People were like, oh, are they going to sit next to each other? Are they sit by each other at the NBA Finals and all that stuff? Um, and, yeah, I don't know whatever happened with that. But I remember hearing about it. Yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, whatever. Good for him. You know, you won your one uh, Toronto Raptors uh, NBA Finals trophy. You'll win your entire lifetime. Congrats. Yeah, good job. And then uh, you lost your best player. So, <laughs> and probably your third best player too. But yeah, 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 absolutely. So that's that's how it goes. But uh, good job, Drake, and uh, enjoy that championship trophy in your videos while you can. And my uh, my next, uh, I think it was a concert with all you inflatable. But my next story oh, okay. is uh, <laughs> hilarious. I love this story so much, and I think you'll know why immediately. Uh huh. I'm going to have to say this without laughing, so I'll have to focus here. Marlins apologized for invoking Steve Irwin's death in Twitter feud with a racist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the uh, Rays being that fruity fish that uh, killed Steve Irwin. Yep. That, that is maybe... Now, I don't say this lightly, but I, I, I'm not going to say the best. But that might be one of the, the top five norm moments... Uh, starting to talk about that on the Daily Show just because of John Stewart's reaction. Because John Stewart's like he's so pained, but Norm is so funny he can't help himself. And you can yeah, just Norm, Norm just keeps driving ahead because <laughs> he knows he knows he, because he knows it pains him. You can just hear him begging to don't make me laugh at this. It was yeah, yeah. it was so soon after Steve Irwin died. Yes. It was like the next day. <laughs> And it's like a genius joke too. It's oddly enough, you can find it on Comedy Central. It's like, there's a clip of it on there. I can't find it anywhere else, but it's on Comedy Central's like official site, even though it's you know ten years old. Maybe I, right? I imagine the person's a big fan of Norm who, who kept it. 
Oh my god! Yeah, it's that's one of that's one of the best. Oh, <laughs> he's doing like the the crocodiles. Like who who got him? You, you know, you, you get him, Fred. Ah, oh, don't even don't even ask me. I don't want to talk about. <laughs> you know, I could have got him. Him him and his little kid. Yeah, I've only heard that story about fifty fucking times. <laughs> oh my uh, god, that's hilarious. But yeah, so uh, basically the uh, the interns running the uh, Twitter accounts, uh, one of them invoked uh, Steve Irwin's death against the Rays. So <laughs> that is... it was a little harder than they wanted to. I think it's hilarious for a lot of reasons, especially the Norbert Donald. Uh... Yeah, for sure. Oh, that is hilarious. So, so the Rays beat somebody and they invoked Steve Irwin's death. Yeah, they're arguing with the Marlins, and Marlon goes, you literally killed Steve Irwin. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Yeah, I read about this the other day. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, like, rest in peace, Steve Irwin. But... <laughs> I mean, that's that's a ripe old age for a crocodile hunter. Sure is. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. Uh, another another great one, if you haven't seen it, is uh, Norm's comments. I think it was in the Dennis Miller show about Dog the Body Hunter. Oh, no, I don't think I... That might be one I haven't seen. Yeah, that one is uh, hilarious. I would check that out. All right, yeah, definitely will. Oh, we got any other uh, stories here from TMZ Sports? No, oddly enough, they go back to the uh, Andre Dumming beer story. Oh, weird. At one point, it's like a video now, but yeah, it's not not anything that's in, that super interesting. But uh, yeah, it's my, uh, my version of the uh, TMZ Sports that does not appear to exist. Okay. Back to you, Mark. I just want to read the the back and forth between the Tampa Bay Rays, which, by the way, they're not they don't call themselves the Devil Rays anymore, and the Miami Marlins. So they, these are two aquatic animal uh, uh, mascots, by the way. Uh, it says the the Rays say show the final out. Marlins say can't hear you. Must be the Maple Leafs crunching. Tampa Bay. Yeah, you know what that's about, Ray? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Tampa Bay says, "Here's the broom we just used on you, so you can clean them up." And then the Marlin says, "You're literally the animal that killed Steve Irwin." Log off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is that is a quality feud between interns over over Twitter, though. I love it. It's funny how no one like on the uh, the Marlins like team thought that was going too far. <laughs> oh, but anyway, so we will move on to our parents' guide game, uh, Mike. I guess even though we don't keep score, I'm going to say that it's my turn to go first. So I got two movies uh, pulled up for you. Here is the first one under sex and nudity. Two men are shown bare-chested. Go on. <laughs> That's it. Um, basketball. No, not, not a bad guess, but no. But not a good one? Well, it's not basketball, so I guess not. <laughs> I'm going to give you a warning. I had a little help with these ones. I'm uh, running out of movies that I know for sure you've seen. Okay. Um, I know you watch more movies than I do, but I can only kind of speculate in some cases. So my wife, uh, give me a little help on these because she knows some movies you've seen. So keep that in mind. 
You got it. A woman seductively fondles a man's crotch with her toes under a table. Later, the woman embraces the man, pulling her leg up to his thigh and holds it there as she pleads to him. I know this movie already. Um, Weekend at Bernie's? You are correct. <laughs> wow. Yep, yep, I remember that that scene. Um, <laughs> okay, that, that, that Alex hint might have been too much. Okay, let me go with... Um, one of the more obvious ones. Well, actually, I want to have a little fun. So let me, uh, I'm going to read a couple just to see if you get it. Because the obvious ones, I'm going to tell you, are incredibly obvious. Um, let's see. There is a sudden, unexpected jump scare as somebody's character quickly flashes on the screen with a loud, ear-piercing sound. While he is trying to remember how he got to his current location. Fight Club? No. Um, What's another one? A man's wrist is broken as he falls backwards out of a window, implying that he dies. Die Hard? No, that's a really weird way to to do that sentence. Um, Okay, I'm just going to read this one. This one's... Fairly, this one might give it to you. Peter is bitten by a spider, which leaves him with a big bite mark on his hands. Oh, is that the first Spider-Man movie then? Yeah, that's under oh, okay. violence and gore. I know you. I knew you'd seen it because this is the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I did see that. I just haven't seen it in forever. But most of the most of the ones are like the Green Goblin implies this. I like this one a lot. The Green Goblin implies he may rape MJ <laughs> to Spider-Man. <laughs> all right uh all right. so now do i start again yeah i I'll guess go. okay go ahead it is implied a couple has sex the night before in the beginning of the film nothing is shown hmm um ferris bueller's day off no i should have said super bad um okay let's see now it's been a while since... Well, I mean, I, I don't want to give any clues. Not a long while, because it's not like it's a really old film or anything. But um, I saw this movie when it came out, and not since then. So, I am not... Okay, I'll do drugs and alcohol. Cocaine is briefly seen at the villain's hangout. And the other one under drugs and alcohol is a man makes and uses marijuana briefly. Is this the crow? No. Huh. A guy gets punched very hard in the stomach and drops to the floor. Uh, summer rental? No. Okay. Uh, let's see. Brief, so this is under sex and nudity. Brief kiss between a a couple in memory flashes. (laughs) So there's a brief kiss between a couple in some flashes of memory, and somehow that's sex and nudity. Demolition Man? No. This sentence is hilarious to me. At a party, some students share a marijuana joint. 
Oh, okay. Punched in the stomach, collapsing from that a party. You're sharing a marijuana joint, of course. Um, oh, uh, Dazed and Confused? No. Uh, a sequence of scenes takes place in a bathhouse where there are women in bikinis. The scene is very dark and nothing sexual is shown or takes place, but we're still putting it under sex and nudity. Club Dread? No. Hmm. I'm just reading this one because this sentence makes me laugh. Words such as shit are also used. <laughs> um, hmm. uh, stand by me. No. A man is shot through the ear. And then in parentheses, blood spurts. I, this is a Tarantino movie, I'm almost positive. Huh. Is it Reservoir Dogs? No. Racial slurs such as the N-word with the hard R on the end are used. Oh, wow. Okay. So, hmm, punched in the stomach. Passive marijuana. And they're using the N-word. Hmm. Hard R at the end. Yeah. That narrows it down. Um, hmm. Wow, there's so, like... a lot of You watch a lot of movies that hard are there, Mark? No, it's just I'm trying to think of any I can think of. Uh, I mean, you know, besides, like, Tarantino or Scorsese films, um, which I guess it could be one of those. I'm trying to think of what movies <laughs> that Alex knows I've watched of those. Um, hmm. I will say, I don't think that happens in this, but is it Jackie Brown? No. Okay. Um, despite having lots of shootouts and stabbing overall, it's not that graphic with how fast it is. Most of the time, the violence boils down to a gunshot and a small mist of blood. Natural born killers? No. Two guys make jokes that can be considered racist throughout the movie. <laughs> so, okay. So it's a really uh, racist <laughs> Then Two guys make jokes that can be considered racist throughout the movie. Um, hmm. Is it Friday? No. Okay. Uh, two men. Nope. F- yep. It's not racist in that context. Oh, okay. Uh, two men fight in the rain. One of the men gets stabbed with a knife, but stabs his opponent back, killing him. The fight is not graphic, but intense, due to how the setting is in the rain, and how the protagonist is injured. (laughs) Wow, I I have no idea what this movie is. It's intense because the setting's in the rain, and the protagonist is injured. (laughs) Is it, um... Hold on, is it Die Hard 2? No. I guess that's snow, not rain, huh? Yeah, that's true. A young man is beaten in jail by racist football fans. It happens off screen, but his beaten face is shown in the next scene. Racist football fans in jail. The longest yard? No. I, I, did they use the hard R in the longest yard? I doubt it, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> I was thinking of the remake with you know Chris uh, with Chris Rock because well, Chris Rock I'm gets sure they, uh, get beaten up in that. Oh, I've never seen that. Uh, okay, let's see. The main character is attacked with baseball bats by intruders. More upsetting than brutal. John Wick. Yep, you got it. Okay, yeah, I don't know why it took me that long to figure that one out. The next one that I was going to do is a puppy is killed and the remains are graphically seen. Yeah, I, I, I knew someone got shot in the ear. I, that was the clue that I couldn't stop thinking of, but I didn't figure it out until the uh, robber. Yeah, yeah. Good old John Wick. I think this next one's uh, going to give it away, probably. <laughs> A uh, woman invites a man over to her parents' house for dinner. The man had undergone racial transformation and looks black to everyone present. Oh, Jesus the Christ. The older mother fantasizes about him ripping her black dress from the cleavage area in a sexualized manner. Nothing excessive is shown. Soul man. <laughs> yes. How did I not get that? After the, especially after the, um, the, uh, the... Two guys making jokes. Yeah, I should have gotten that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I figured you would kick yourself for not figuring out that. Oh, soul man. Well, uh, speaking of, well, I guess, okay, I was going to say speaking of the hard R. It's such a, it was such a good transition, too. But first we got to do a promo. Well, first we, we will love to do a promo. So last week we did a promo for somebody. A great podcast on our network. And this week is no different. It's another great podcast on the network that uh, that you will love to to hear because they do the best work in the world. <laughs> They're doing God's work. Oh, you know what it is? Actually, God's work? Our a- new uh, religious uh, charity <laughs> podcast? Actually, this is a, a podcast that we really uh, like. You may have heard their voices here before it's RJ and Rachel, the skeptical skeptics. That's our oh, nice. uh, that's our promo this week. So absolutely, nice. yeah. uh, unlike usual when we're just bullshitting, <laughs> absolutely yes. go and listen to the skeptical skeptics. Yeah, we really enjoy their uh, podcasts. Oh, uh, what just a, the ones we were on either. Yeah, what a great show that is. So here's uh, the skeptical skeptics. Hi, everybody. I'm RJ Metzger. And I'm Rachel Metzger. And we're the Skeptical Skeptics. Each week, we talk about all the crazy things in the world, ranging from the paranormal to Bigfoot to UFOs. And we look at it from the perspective of the believer, the skeptic, and everything in between. So come check us out on the MSC Podcast Network. Or go to SkepticalSkeptics.com and follow us at SkepSkepPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Okay, so that was the Skeptical Skeptics, and now speaking of the uh, N-word with the hard R, <laughs> this week, although... This is that story you told me uh, off the air? Right. This week, although I don't, I don't think, if I remember correctly, this gets used at all in this movie, but I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's new film. Nice. Yeah, I saw part of it. Did you not? Uh, did you not love it? No, I just ran out of time. It's very long. Like I got like an hour it and a half. It, it seems more like a kind of hangout movie than anything else. You know, it's yep. not like super structured, like story wise. It's almost like uh, you know a fading dream. Like it just kind of like breezily moves along. From oh look, here's here's Bruce Lee and here's Sharon Tate and here's you know it's just kind of like you just 
kind of watch the characters like go go about their day. Yeah, it's definitely. I think "Fading Dream" is the best description I've heard of the movie. It's so. I mentioned last week before I had seen the movie that I had heard from a couple people that I knew that the movie was really good, and I'd heard from a couple people that I knew that, that they hated the movie, and I was like, I don't know what to think of that. It would surprise me if Tarantino made a really bad film, but you know, anything is possible. Uh, you know, even from a good director. I get now where the controversy, or not controversy necessarily, but I get where the division comes in. If you're a real big fan of movies, and, you know, especially older movies, like, like Tarantino clearly is, and you're a big fan of, of the way movies used to be made, then you'll love this movie. If you're not, if you're younger or, you know, more, into kind of the modern stuff, then this movie... If you need, like, a heavily narrative-driven movie, you're not yeah. up here for this one. Yeah, it'll be boring to you, basically. Um, and that's kind of... Because Tarantino famously shoots on film. He doesn't shoot uh, digital like a lot of directors do now. And the care in this movie is really clear. For those, for those people that don't know, this movie takes place in... Los Angeles, around the Hollywood area, in the in the late sixties, uh, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, basically, it takes place over the course of I think around maybe six months or so in nineteen sixty nine, and uh, Hollywood was going through a big change at that point. Uh, Roman Polanski, future pedophile, was <laughs> was part of that. Part of that change of the new Hollywood coming in, so is George Lucas and. Yeah, it's when you had the auteur, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, period in Hollywood. You know, you had, like you said, George Lucas, uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, yep. Dennis Hopper was out there making Easy Rider. You know, they were uh, Ken Kesey's book, uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, mm-hmm. was going to be coming. I think the book came out around that time. I could be wrong on that, but it was just a very free thinking, like you know, artistically driven period in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Scorsese was a big part of the, part of that too, uh, which obviously has been an inspiration for some of Tarantino's work. A lot of the stuff that kind of inspired some more of his sort of gangster esque type movies, you know, came out of this new Hollywood era. And it's it's a changing of the guard between the old, you know, the old guard, the the fifties and the you know the early to mid sixties, the westerns. You know, those kind of things, those kind of movies, and these new ideas and these new types of movies that were being made uh, at that time, or starting to be made at that time. And that's what both, that's what both, uh, what's his name, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's character represent. And they, it's two different ways that they handle it. Um, DiCaprio wants to hold on as much as he can, and it's clear he really cares about acting. There are several scenes of him practicing his lines, memorizing his lines with, with tape recorders, really caring about. There's there's a whole section in the middle of the film where it's just him preparing, just him doing different takes, just him trying to get all the acting right, and it's a beautiful insight to his care into his character. Um and so, you know, you get a lot of his character. He wants to hold on as much as possible. Brad Pitt is more malleable. He's more kind of free to move where, where things are going to go. And he doesn't 
care as much about that stuff. Yeah, I think Tarantino does a great job with uh, Brad Pitt's character, especially like in the opening, like you know, scenes when he's at his uh, home feeding his dog. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I I was very much on the fence as whether or not he was also going to be eating the dog. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which I, obviously was the intent. So I think that really like made you like you really gave you a good like idea of his character. He's like this rough and tumble like. He doesn't care kind of guy. You know, he could be living in a trailer. He could be living in a mansion. He'll be the same person regardless. He just wants to, you know, kind of go home and veg out watching TV, petting his dog. He's a very simple kind of character. Yeah, absolutely. Which in a, which is kind of interesting because if you think about it during that era, you know, the, the cowboy characters were, in fact, just like Brad Pitt's character. They were just very simple, you know, no motivation, no gray areas, you know, that kind of guy. And then that's, you know, he's like a throwback in this movie, which, you know, comes up in a very uh, violent and real-world-inspired way against the, uh, you know, the hippies and the people who are really trying to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And he, uh, you know, he he is, like, real simple, like you said. And he, he's, he has some, he has a checkered past. He's he, He's been in the war. He was, uh, you know, like some people call him a war hero or whatever that gets thrown around a little bit in the movie, but... Uh, even more than anything else, that you know, it's revealed at one point that they don't. That he's a stuntman. He's he is Leonardo DiCaprio's stuntman, and DiCaprio's on a set of this this movie that he's filming or TV show that he's filming. And yeah, the Green Hornet, I think. Yeah, and uh, well, yeah. At first, at first, he's on the Green Hornet. So I, I guess I'll go back to the beginning real quick. At the beginning of the film, there's this excellent scene with. Uh, DiCaprio and and Brad Pitt and Al Pacino in a bar where Al Pacino's playing uh, this agent or manager and he's basically saying to DiCaprio's character, "Look, there you know, you used to be the big shot on this show. You you had your own show, your own western show. Now, you're guest starring as the villain on all these shows with these new guys that are coming on trying to make their own name and what they want to do is they want to show the new guy punching you as many times as he can because that says to the audience, here's the new hero. He's taken out the old hero. This is a changing of the guard. That's why you keep getting these things. You should go make Italian westerns, which Leonardo DiCaprio. And if anyone's seen any of the uh, the Italian films from this era, the late 60s, early 70s, there are a lot of them that are absolute garbage. <laughs> And DiCaprio's like, oh, my God, those movies suck. I don't want to do that at all. Um, but he's trying to convince him that that's the best thing for his career. And it, it makes me kind of sad because Al Pacino is still a good actor. I mean, a lot of times, you know, he's in stuff where he's not a good actor. But it's so it sucks because there are these guys around like Nicholson and like you know, De Niro and, and different guys like this where they don't have scripts anymore. They don't have movies anymore to play to any of their strengths as far as acting goes. It's either some giant, uh, big budget, you know, Marvel type movie where there's not a ton of acting required, let's be honest. And you've got to, you know, you got to get shredded and look the part. Or it's some, you know, broad comedy where, you know, Al Pacino's saying, uh, you know, uh, it's a Dunkachino, you know, and all this stuff, um, you know, in some stupid Adam Sandler film. 
So it's like uh, that multiple stupid Adam Sandler movies, I believe. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing is, is like there's no there's no scripts like this for him anymore, and it just it sucks because it in you know our reality kind of mirrors this this changing of the guard in, in Hollywood. You know, during the late '60s and then into early '70s, you know, it was one changing. Now it's the the era of movie stars, the era of superstar directors. It's gone. I mean, look at what what beat what beat this movie at the box office was the Lion King remake, a CGI fest of a movie that already exists. Yeah, there's only a few like you know really like filmmakers out there. I would say at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tar- Tarantino for sure, the Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue the Wachowskis because like everything they do is very innovative, even if it's not like super popular. Yeah, I'll take a bad original movie over, you know, remakes and and sequels and all this bullshit. I mean, there's more. That's just, you know, the few I've... Yeah, I mean, Scorsese's still out there. You know, there's still some... There's still... I would say that... um, That... uh, What's his name? Uh, Alfonso Cuaron is... uh, You know, he did Children of Men. He did Roma. Uh, I would say he's a, a very good filmmaker that's still out there. There are some... But Darren, uh, Darren Afrosky, yeah, Aronofsky, yeah, Aronofsky, yeah, exactly yeah. in that group, yeah, Paul so, Thomas Anderson, yeah, Kevin Smith, I'd say. yeah, yeah, Kevin Smith, I think is still original. Um, yeah, in spite of some of the, you know, I, I listen to Mark's review of Yoga Hosers, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's got to make like the uh, the clip of the year, I think. That's that's my favorite thing that's ever happened on the show, but yeah, so. So there, you know, there are still some filmmakers out there and there, there are ways you can find those films. But for the most part, you know, kind of the era of the filmmaker, the era of the movie star is, is passing away because they, they, those movies don't make the big money anymore. You know, Jaws isn't, you know, the biggest movie in, in the world anymore with Robert fucking Shaw, you know, as one of the, as one of the leads. And, uh, you know, like a yeah. guy, a guy like Spielberg, uh, you know, directing it. That's just really the, uh, Roy Schrader, Richard Dreyfus is a great cast for the whole movie. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, so the, those, those movies aren't, you know, even that it's like, it's, it's down from that basically. Uh, and you know, I don't want to. Don't not... sleep on Mr. Holland's Opus. Oh yeah, I like that movie. Actually, my wife introduced yeah, me to that movie. movie. Yeah. But anyway, so so you know, those movies aren't making money anymore. It sucks. It's 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 either really broad, dumb comedies or these giant Marvel movies where you don't even need a director. You, you know, Which, honestly, well, you could argue those are remakes of the comics. I mean, they're yeah. not original. Exactly. Yeah, and that's a big reason why you don't really need the director. It's all storyboarded for you in a comic. And then you just animate half of it. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. And that's why so many of these movies feel like they're done by a committee, because they are. I mean, that's how they're made. Yes. But anyway, so the, this, this movie, it, it reflects a lot of that. And it, you know, it takes this time period when there was another big change to kind of highlight a lot of it. And it does that really well. And another thing that I really like about the movie is the the attention to detail that Tarantino puts in everything. Yeah, that's obscene in this movie. Like, there's ads for the time period that are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, billboards. There's even, like, at the end, there's, like, a contest that was on the radio that was a real contest. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And, and 
you know, you see them like they'll drive down. There's there, there's a lot of driving in this movie, which is very California, especially during that time period. But they love their cars in California, and uh, you know they drive a lot out there. And so there's a lot of driving, there's a lot of cruising in this movie. And when they do it, you can tell they're really driving. It's not green screened behind them. It's not rear projection. It's none of, none of that, which he's done sometimes in the past more for stylistic reasons, whether he's trying to ape the look of a, a certain movie or something like that or, or whatever. But, you know, he goes against that here and Every set is like meticulously built, like long sets of storefronts, like period accurate newsstands and stuff like that. As this thing is, you know, cars are cruising through and it's like, you know, they really constructed whole, you know, giant sets for for this. And that kind of attention to detail and, you know, being able to the fluidity of that of that filmmaking and everything it it really shows through in the movie, and it, I I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, it was amazing, and also uh, Justified's in it. Yeah, that's right. Yes, good old Justified. The guy from uh, from Justified who played Charles, it plays Charles Manson. He was on uh, Justified's show, Justified as well. Oh, he was. I I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, he was Dewey Crow. I think his name was. And have you, I'm sure you've heard about this controversy over the uh, fight with Bruce Lee. Yes. That, that might be the dumbest thing I've heard in my entire life. I mean, it's up there. There's quite a few uh, stupid things I've heard, but I don't think anybody like legitimately thinks, oh, that fucking Bruce Lee, he actually fought this fictional character and was an asshole. <laughs> right? Sick. Who cares? Oh, uh, it's so stupid. But it, it, it's just, it's, you know, it, it's... Especially it, when uh, these days uh, Bruce Lee would just be torn apart in like an MMA battle with his, you know, fighting style that he had developed. No, yeah, you're right. He would be, but it's there's another there's another example. See, the people that are doing that are missing the point. It's not the point that it's Bruce Lee and this fictional character. It's the point that here's new Hollywood. You know, the Green Hornet Bruce Lee. Obviously, he you know didn't live long enough to fully take over New Hollywood. But you know, the cowboys used to do things one way. They fought you know a certain way. They did things a certain way when they scrapped on screen. This is a whole new way of doing things. It's the clash again between that, you know, that new Hollywood and the old Hollywood. And I think it's clear, especially from that scene, that Tarantino likes both because it's it's a tie, basically. I mean, Bruce Lee gets him down once and then uh, and then uh, Brad Pitt throws him throws him once into a car, albeit, but he gets up from that and, uh, and they don't get to do a third time cause they get, they get interrupted, but you know, it, it's sort of a draw between them. Yeah. That's when someone casually throws out the, uh, the comment that, uh, Brad Pitt's character killed his wife. Yeah. That's it. And very reminiscent of a thing that we like to bring up sometimes <laughs> the, uh, the Natalie Wood death, uh, on the boat because, yeah, we're not talking about Robert Wagner or uh, Christopher Walken here. <laughs> no, but uh, but yeah, they 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 do one flash to it, and they don't. I think on purpose, Tarantino uh, doesn't show us whether or what exactly happened. But he's coming up. He's clearly drunk. He's got a harpoon in his hand, a harpoon gun in his hand. I've got a trident, and now I'm going to murder you. <laughs> his wife is, you know, like basically ragging on him constantly like it's just a constant stream of 
you know, uh, what, how terrible he is and everything. He goes and sits down. Women are right. Right. She walks up and then it cuts. So it doesn't let us know. Was it an accident? Did he do it on purpose? Does it matter? You know, is it something that you need to answer for yourself? It's, it's, it leaves it very ambiguous. And I, I think the point is that it doesn't really matter whether it was on purpose or an accident, I guess. The point was, is that it was something he was capable of and he got away with it and people don't like him for it. But I think it was, I think it was very clear that it was a, that it was an allusion to that, to the Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood thing. It would have been really funny because, you know, Tarantino has a has a relationship with him in, to some degree. It would have been hilarious if the right before that scene ended, <laughs> Christopher Walken walked up from like under, you know, the, the birth area and was like, what's going on here? <laughs> I didn't see anything. And then and then have it cut. From there, that, that would have been hilarious. Yeah, I don't think you would have done that. Oh, uh, uh, probably not. I don't think you would have agreed to that. Oh, uh, but it would have been great. Uh, so yeah, yeah, he, um, you know, that's uh, that's when they talk about that, and they, and they just kind of leave it. You know, that's that's it. Uh, obviously, uh, Margot Robbie is the other main character. I would say in the movie playing um, Sharon Tate. She doesn't get a ton to do, I guess. She's sort of a, a presence in the background of the film for most of the movie. Uh, her and Roman Polanski uh, to some degree, but mostly her. And she's Margot Robbie's very good in the movie. She's very good at, as, as Sharon Tate. And the the scene that makes it is the one sort of in the middle of the movie where she goes to see herself in, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie, but um, in a movie that she was in at the time. And she goes to the theater, she sits down and, you know, takes her shoes off because, of course, Quentin Tarantino's got to see feet in any movie that he directs. But she takes her but shoes off. You know how off. bad that has to be, like, in, you know, outside. If, he's, if it's so bad that he has to include it in every movie he does. <laughs> yeah, no you know, he is like, He's like, oh, I've toned it down for my professional career. <laughs> but he, he lives like a giant shoe. Seriously? <laughs> oh, God. But, yeah, so he, he, he she puts her feet up on the, her bare feet up on the the seat and watches herself. And it's interesting because it's not, it's not Margot Robbie. It's actually Sharon Tate. And... It works like instead of instead of inserting her, you know, they could have digitally inserted her into the film. Uh, it's a Dean Martin movie. I remember. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, that's as they did earlier with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's a, now I remembered it's a, it's one of the Matt Helm films, which was uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Dean Martin fan. It was a, uh, a like a spy spoof uh, series of films that Dean Martin made in the 60s. And she was actually in. In this one, Sharon Tate. And uh, so, yeah, but it's actually her, Sharon Tate. And it, it works. You know, it, it's, you know, it's clear that it's it's not Marco Robbie and it's actually Sharon Tate. But it, it in the in the spirit of the scene and everything that's kind of going on and getting an insight into Sharon Tate and her character and kind of almost like letting the audience fall in love with her, basically, 
uh, this, you know, this woman that was on the verge of becoming, you know, a, a, a big starlet in Hollywood. You know, she wasn't quite there yet, obviously, in real life. Uh, unfortunately, tragically, uh, you know, that was cut short. But she, uh, you know, she was close to that. And, um, you know, just watching her enjoy and laugh at, at, you know, what's going on and everything. And it all kind of worked together really beautifully. And it, it's a, you know, you don't need dialogue to make that scene and to make that connection. It's really very good filmmaking, I think, uh, on Tarantino's part. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah. It's re- reminiscent of Jackie Brown to me, just like the way you're, it's kind of like a breezy kind of movie, you know, yep. like a... You kind of like just like kind of hang out with the character, you know. It's kind of oh, let's see what they're up to, you know. It's not like you know, oh my god, I have to get the MacGuffin over here before this happens. It's just like yeah, they're just kind of like you know, hanging out, like living their lives. Exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, the other the other presence in the back of this film is the Manson family. Uh, you know, we we see Charles Manson once uh, when he comes to the house and asks for Terry. Which is a real life event that happened. There was a record producer that lived in the house before Polanski and Sharon Tate bought it. And Manson, obviously, you know, he had some connection to, uh, um, Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys and, you know, some like, you know, like loose connections there and some connections with other with other people in the music industry and he was looking for him and you know was informed that that uh he you know he had sold the house he didn't live there anymore and that was you know kind of when they planned to to do this uh, this crime that they that they ended up doing killing killing Sharon Tate and uh you know her friends there at the house and uh so we see we see him basically just that one time and then we see Squeaky From. We see some of the other the other members of the Manson family, these teenage hippies that are living at this abandoned Hollywood studio, which is another, you know, I know that the Mansons aren't part of New Hollywood, obviously, the Manson family, but, you know, sort of that, yeah, like that element and everything is you know one of the things that's kind of and and the the stain of what they did and everything you know affected new hollywood affected the country and you know they're they're again they're at the vestiges of the old which is which is shut down this old movie studio where they used to film and so Brad Pitt you know he confronts them a little bit there uh he he goes to see if if the guy that owned the place is is okay, if everything's okay with him, if you know he's like uh, wants to make sure that everything's all right, and he has allowed them to stay here, which he basically says he did, uh, played by uh, Bruce, or, yeah, Bruce Stern, right? Yeah, that's Bruce, yeah. Bruce Stern. Um, very small role, but uh, you know he's good, obviously, as always. Yeah, I think he was originally going to be uh, Burt Reynolds. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they, like he, so he has a little which, encounter which with them. It's kind of hilarious if you recall the, uh, the old SNL, uh, sketch where they were auditioning for Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of the characters was, uh, Burt Reynolds, played by Norm. Yeah. <laughs> so he actually, uh, you can kind of picture that scenario going, this old picture going to be about, uh, murder and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, but so, so he... You know, like that's one of the that's probably the 
the most in your face until the end that uh, that the Manson family is. Other than that, it's just kind of around the surfaces, uh, which is you know like nice. It's like a menacing presence. Most of the people that are what that are going to watch this movie are aware of you know what actually happened with Sharon Tate and everything. We see her you know at first you know as the it's starting out. It's February. And she's not pregnant, obviously, then she gets pregnant. Um, you know, like I said, I think most people know that, um, you know, she was uh, almost fully nine months pregnant when they murdered her, uh, you know, and her child and uh, heir to the heiress to the Folger fortune. And, uh, you know, the the other guy that was uh, that was there while um, Polanski was in Italy filming, finishing the filming of, of some movie. Uh, but anyway. So, you know, you see her pregnant, it's sort of, it's like a ticking clock kind of thing, and the the tone of the movie starts to sort of change a little bit as we get closer to to that event, and Brad Pitt's character gets, uh, buys a, a cigarette laced with acid from one of the, uh, the Manson hippies, who tries to come on to him, but when he actually confronts them at this movie place, it's because he gives her a ride there. And she asks if he wants if he wants her to to suck his dick while uh, he's driving, and he says, "How old are you?" <laughs> she looks at him and says, uh, "You know, for our purposes or whatever, I'm 18." And he says, "You got any ID that says that?" <laughs> and and basically says that uh, lots of women have tried to get him arrested for. For sex and you know, no offense, but she's not going to be the one to do it. <laughs> That's funny. They just lots her. Um, and uh, so he, um, you know, he buys a cigarette laced with acid from her. They, you know, eventually Di- DiCaprio goes to Italy, films these these movies. They do fairly well, but you know, it's it's still Italian cinema in the late sixties, so it's not the best, and. DiCaprio basically says, look, it's over for me. I'm going to retire. We're going to sell the house. I'm, we're going to, you know, like use that as savings. And then we're just going to try to, you know, live just normal lives, basically. And I'm not going to be able to afford you anymore. as Because uh, he's a stuntman, but he's also kind of like his assistant and his gopher and all this stuff. And he says, so we're going to have one last night, basically. He gets married to some Italian woman in... While he's in Italy, uh, a co-star of his that, that doesn't get much in the way of character development, really. Uh, but I think is there for a specific reason that I'll get to in a minute. But so they, they go to have this this party. They make margaritas and everything. Uh, Brad Pitt takes his dog for a walk while he smokes this uh, acid-laced cigarette. And DiCaprio comes out. He, he hears the car from the Manson family. And basically says, you know, hey, get the get the hell out of here, you hippies. You know, your car's all loud and everything. And Squeaky Frome and, and the other ones, they say, hey, isn't that that guy that was that cowboy on that show? And basically they say, you know, they taught us violence when we were a kid. Let's teach them violence now. So they decide instead of going to Sharon Tate's like Charlie Manson wanted them to, they're going to go to DiCaprio's house and kill him instead. Which is a divergence from, you know, the actual history, obviously. And it's maybe... I don't even know if I can call it a criticism. 
it's the one thing that's sort of because it's so much like Inglorious Bastards, what happens at the end of the film, but at the same time, you know, knowing what the Manson family did, knowing how evil, you know, all that shit was, it is really satisfying what happens. So it's it's hard to really quibble with it, but they they come in there. Uh, Brad Pitt comes back. They've got DiCaprio's out in his pool, uh, kind of listening to music uh, while he's you know he's drunk, and uh, his wife is in bed sleeping because she's jet lagged from from the trip from Italy. And you know they they see Brad Pitt. They pull out the gun. They pull out their knives, and he's like, "Oh, you know what the fuck's going on here?" And he but he stays real calm like he does through through the whole thing. He basically makes a click-click sound with his mouth to the dog. The dog that's been so sweet the entire movie, but was just waiting for this one instruction. Dog fucking attack goes after them, uh, bites the guy in the crotch. Brad Pitt takes the opportunity to, um, to, uh, you know, rush them. In the meantime, they had gotten the Italian woman, the wife, out of the bedroom, knife to her, her, uh, her throat and everything. Um, and, uh, Brad Pitt, uh, you know, rushes over there, grabs Squeaky from, really just bashes the, her fucking face in really hardcore against the, against the, the fireplace. It's a lot of violence, a lot of over the top gore, a lot of the Manson family just getting the absolute shit kicked out of them. At one point, DiCaprio becomes aware of what's going on, gets a flamethrower that they that they had foreshadowed early in the movie that he'd used on another movie, and yeah, they said he trained for like three hours a day for two weeks on the flamethrower. Yeah, and he burns uh, Squeaky Frome to a crisp, and uh, so they fuck up and kill the entire Manson family. The cops come, paramedics come. Brad Pitt gets stabbed, but you know he's gonna be okay. Uh, they come and they say, you know, what happened? It's like, oh, I don't know. They were, they were these hippies and everything. Guy said, you know, we're doing the devil's work and, and all this stuff. He's like, I don't know what the fuck he was talking about. And, um, and so, you know, the cops take down the story. They're like, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. Um, and, uh, so they take Brad Pitt to the hospital. He's going to get worked on. The Italian wife is taking a bunch of uh, sleeping pills. Uh, and, and like, you know, anxiety pills because she's, uh, you know, all freaked out. So she's going to be fine. Um, DiCaprio kind of, yeah, exactly. DiCaprio kind of walks outside and, you know, the, uh, the guy that's been hanging out with, with Polanski's wife, uh, Sharon Tate, he comes out and he's like, what's going on? And he says, he's like, all oh, these people, you know, that came and like, I don't know, they had guns, they had knives, I don't know what, the, what they were planning on doing, but, you know, like, we basically fought them and everything. And Sharon Tate calls on the, the thing and says, hey, you know, oh my gosh, like, what's going on? And he explained it. And they're like, oh, you know, I, I was such a big fan of your show and all this stuff. Do you know, do you want to come up? He had talked earlier about how, you know, he was right there next to Roman Polanski. Maybe he'd be in a Roman Polanski movie. Um, you know, and everything because, uh, you know, like it was a good networking type thing. And then he finds out, you know, she loves, you know, she likes his show and, and all this stuff. 
And he comes up, and there's this hint, like, hey, maybe, you know, he'll be in some Roman Polanski films. Maybe Roman Polanski won't rape a girl because his his wife was murdered. You know, it's like, it's this little kind of, like, what if, you know, because when this happened in 69, for people that, that weren't alive, including us, but for people that weren't alive during this time, I guess maybe it's kind of hard to, to understand. But it really changed. Like, it was like a, like... This happened, and then a couple years later, Watergate happened. And, you know, that combined with Kennedy's assassination six years earlier in, Both of them. in 63. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Martin Luther King's assassination, all that stuff kind of just piled one on top of another to really sort of destroy the national innocence and everything. And I think this movie and this moment of, like, what if is kind of like, what if we had kept some of our innocence what if hollywood had kept some of its innocence um you know where would we be at today kind of thing and it's really a fable uh, about that um you know i guess that's the ultimate point of the movie but for the most part like you said mike it's kind of just a really cool hangout film uh where it's where it's like just get like just be with these characters and and enjoy some scenes with these characters done by a a Amazing director who's absolutely at the top of his game when it yep. comes to directing. You know, it's like there's not a wasted moment. It's uh, just it, it's not up in your face that this is 1969. But if you care to look around, there's no doubt that it is. Yep, absolutely. But I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's not my favorite movie of his, but I thought it was really good. Um, you know, like you said, it reminds me of Jackie Brown in, in some certain ways, and I, I, I thought it was an enjoyable film. Uh, it's something. It's one I'll probably watch again when it comes out on on Netflix and, and everything. But I really, I really liked it. Yeah, it's definitely a movie. I mean, like I said, I saw like the first half, basically up to where he was going to the uh, pick the girl up who was hitchhiking and take her to the ranch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, from, I, I've liked everything I've seen about it. I'm, you know, obviously a Tarantino fan. We've mentioned that before, but it's it's a nice. Uh, breezy movie that's like a perfect summer movie i guess really in a lot of ways yeah no i i agree with that too i think that's i think that's it, right it's on. like uh it's a movie like grease but for adults yeah absolutely that's that's a really good that's a really good analogy too it is kind of like that but yeah for for more of the adult set yeah i like that like like the cohen's like uh tarantino doesn't ever like underestimate his you know his viewers he doesn't like think you oh god i have to you know cater to the lowest common mm-hmm. denominator here he makes intelligent movies you know that he just assumes you'll understand you know it's not like uh you know he, he understands that the audience isn't gonna really believe that this crazy stuntman you know stopped the manson murders or anything like that but you know he knows that you want to play you know with the movie with the time with the genre yep it's it's like a it's like a nice pastiche of you know westerns and you know, the auteur kind of era of filmmakers, and just like Tarantino, just, you know, it's almost like a documentary of like an idea he had. That's how well translated the movie is. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, uh, yeah, that is our episode for the week. Um, as always, tell a friend about the show. That's the most important thing you can do. Find us on Twitter, on MySpace, on uh, Facebook. Find us everywhere. Check out Retro Late Fee, too. Uh, I don't get to to uh, you know kind of publicize the the social media over there as much because in 1994 all that stuff didn't exist. But uh, find them as well. Uh, Mike is uh, massive late fee. Mike on Twitter, find him and tweet at him. Ask him some questions. 
all that stuff. Uh, and reviews. If you give us a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate it. That all helps with the analytics or whatever robots control our lives. Uh, but that is our show for the week. Uh, we will see you next week. Bye. See you next time.